Simply renouncing your faith is not enough. You have to turn in your friends. You have to completely sell your soul to the regime in order to survive. Today, I sit down with Peabody Award-winning filmmaker Leon Lee. In his new feature film, Unsilenced, he tells the story of a group of students who risked their lives to expose brutal persecution in China. The entire nation is mobilized in the crackdown against Falun Gong. Like most things critical of the Chinese regime, forces were at work trying to make this film disappear. Several senior cast members, even after signing a deal memo, they would back off. Sometimes only days before production would start. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Leon Lee, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me here, Leon. I just recently watched your new film, Unsilenced. And first of all, the title, Unsilenced. I mean, this is something that not only people in China, where the film is based, people all over the world are thinking about this topic: censorship, silencing, being able to say their piece in the public square. Tell us, what is this Unsilenced all about? Unsilenced is based on true events about how an American reporter and a team of innocent students in China come together to expose one of the largest human rights atrocities in China. I can't remember somehow the last time I saw a film come out of Hollywood that was in any way critical of the Chinese regime. Well, the last time is perhaps 1997. When actually we had the three films uh, coming out from from Hollywood, being remotely critical of the Chinese regime, they talked about the human rights issues in Tibet,、uh, and so on and so forth.、Uh, but after that, Hollywood seemed to have learned、uh, a big lesson、uh, in order to get into the Chinese market, which、uh, last year I believe officially surpassed the United States in terms of、uh, box office. To be the the largest in the world,、uh, they are no longer、uh, able to produce anything、uh, that tells the truth about China, and not only that, I believe there was a trend to actively please the censors in in Beijing in order to、uh, get into the the market. Your film really made me think a lot. You know, frankly, not just about China. But about the world in general, and frankly, how unlikely heroes are made. Tell me a little bit more about how you found these stories. While making my last documentary,、uh, I had an opportunity to meet Wang, who turned out to be the protagonist in the film. In the United States, he had、uh, just escaped from China after spending eight years、uh, in prison, and.、Uh, All his crime was basically exposing、uh, the persecution through very peaceful means,、um, and he was a PhD candidate in China's MIT, the prestigious Tsinghua University. He had a bright future, of course,、uh, but then in uh, 1999, uh, the government in China、uh, started cracking down on Falun Gong. And he had been practicing for some time then, so overnight, he、uh, turned from this the bright star in in elite university to the enemy of the state. He was expelled from school,、uh, 
uh, but he did not give up. He and his friends started uh, this grassroots movement to disseminate information, countering state propaganda. The story is based on uh, his own experience, as well as uh, experiences from other uh, practitioners, uh, Falun Gong, and uh, Western reporters. Well, first of all, I want to talk about Wong, because Wong has a professor in the film, and I really love that character in the film. This professor is troubled by the fact that I think he lost his son in the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989, and he sees what's happening, and he's afraid that the same will happen to his protege. Absolutely. Like an entire generation uh, of Chinese, their ideals, their dreams, their courage were uh, crushed by the massacre in 1989. Uh, many people completely lost hope. And for them to be able to survive, that's their priority. There is no longer any pursuit of any ideals. And his professor, uh, as you mentioned, lost his son in, uh, in 1989. And uh, Wang, he considered Wang his second son. Everything he learned in his life uh, was that do not go against the party. This is the one thing you do not want to do. And he's trying his best to convince Wang to give up, to, uh, to renounce his beliefs. But uh, Wang, of course, believed that his belief is, is, is right, that everything the government was trying to say about Falun Gong was, was false, was complete propaganda and he believed the importance of, of telling the truth. So there was an interesting dynamic between the professor and, and Wang. You know, I just have to comment here, you know, Leon, the first film that I saw of yours uh, was Human Harvest. And that might have, it was one of your very early films. I mean, and talk about talking about an issue that you're not allowed to talk about. This was one of the really big exposés of the whole murder for organs industry in China. And I know you experienced a lot of difficulties in actually having this film made and distributed and eventually ended up winning a Peabody Award for this. But maybe just briefly, if we're going to talk about, you know, being unsilenced about important issues, tell me a little bit about that. Yes, um, Human Harvest was uh, an exposé about the illegal organ trade in China. It, it turned out the Chinese regime had been harvesting vital organs from Falun Gong practitioners, uh, Uyghurs, Tibetans, political dissidents in the hundreds of thousands. Of course, this is to fill the booming uh, transplant industry in China. Uh, in the beginning, uh, most of the recipients are wealthy Western patients. Uh, after the uh, expose, they turned to uh, domestic uh, market. You know, domestic patients are mainly the recipients of those uh, organs now. Many organizations have been working on this issue, issue trying to pressure the Chinese regime to stop uh, using organs from death row inmates and from other political uh, dissidents. Although China made a promise to do so, Unfortunately, the practice hasn't really uh, stopped. In terms of trying to actually get a film like this made on an issue where you just know that no official body will ever admit to doing such things, tell me a little bit about that. Most of my films have 
uh, centered on human rights issues in China, uh, partly because uh, nobody else is doing it. I'm fully aware of how difficult it would be, uh, but until I started really doing these films, uh, I didn't really know how difficult it would be. Take the example of Unsilenced, uh, which we recently finished. I remember in the first production meeting, I was telling uh, my core team that uh, guys were making a film about China, but there were two things you need to know. Number one, we cannot use Chinese cast. Number two, we cannot use Chinese locations. So good luck. <laughs> and and that, that was the very basic difficulties we, we faced. Uh, of course, then we did face the, those uh, challenges. Uh, even when we decided to make this film in Taiwan, several senior cast members, even after signing a deal memo, they would back off, sometimes only days before production would start. In one case, the actor was stressed out because his family and the uh, heavyweight in, in, in the film industry in Taiwan all came together trying to pressure him to back off, telling him this is suicide. You just cannot do a film like this. In other cases, I even have uh, a few roles in the film uh, who are uh, Western actors that are based in, in Taiwan. Even they uh, backed off because they still want to participate in uh, mainly in Chinese productions in, in Taiwan. In terms of uh, locations, the same thing. Initially, I thought Taiwan is a democracy and this film is about China, but the fact that we cannot make it in China, but we can make it in Taiwan, actually shows the world that Taiwan is a democracy, shows the world that why we need to, to, to defend Taiwan, right? But uh, uh, many people were so afraid to allow us to use their locations. In one case, I believe it was uh, Secretary Young's office. Uh, we, were, we started decorating the set. As soon as the, the owner of the facility saw the Chinese flag, she freaked out. She said, no, 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 you can't, you can't shoot your film here. Uh, you must go somewhere else. But then we said, but we, we're going to shoot the scene the next day. We cannot find another place overnight. She said, I, I don't care. You can't uh, film here. So quite often after a long day of production, say 12, 13 hours, the core team had to, you know, go look for another location for the next day. Uh, after the production, I realized that in two months of production, our key creative team had only one day off. It's incredible. Well, you know, and you actually raise a really interesting point. Like the issue comes from a few different directions. Like on the one hand, you have people that are afraid of, you know, making the Chinese regime across the strait angry, right? There's, you know, these overflights over Taipei all the time. I mean, they're, they're spreading this sense of fear. But then the other side of it is there's a whole bunch of people that are just like, what's that Chinese flag doing here? No way you're going to be in here, right? So it kind of comes from two sides, doesn't it? Absolutely. And speaking of fear, I, I got a firsthand experience myself, which made me more to, to, to be able to sympathize with, with them more. I was living in the middle of Taipei and uh, a few mornings I was 
uh, waking up by loud noises and it turned out to be Taiwan's fighter jets scrambling to intercept Chinese fighter jets. And uh, this became a frequent uh, event uh, to a point that when people meet each other, they would comment, would talk about, oh, this morning the Chinese jets, uh, you know, uh, came again to harass us. So it is, for us, it is something that we read about on headlines from time to time. For the people in Taiwan, it's a daily reality they have to face. You know, there, there's this other element, like there's, of course, a significant portion of the Taiwanese population that really once has nothing to do with mainland China as it exists today. Right. Uh, there's lots of political things going on there, but also the CCP's intimidation and harassments certainly played a no small part role in terms of driving more and more people in Taiwan away from the concept of China, no matter how you want to, uh, to define it. Uh, it is safe to say that the vast majority of people in Taiwan cherish their uh, way of life. Um, and almost no one uh, wants to live under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. So Leon, the thing that really struck me about the film was this, I guess this theme that I mentioned earlier that heroes are made of sometimes unlikely people who are ne not necessarily very heroic at the beginning. And I'm remembering this scene uh, where this the young man, the good friend of Wang, his co-student, co-worker in projects, is being told to denounce Wang by the University Communist Party secretary. And I actually, I actually want to run that scene. Wang Boyu is our Chen 一步步陷入法轮功的精神控制中，一物一生。我补充几句：王博宇不仅毁了自己的前途，还教唆李月瑶和郭霞跟他一起扰乱社会治安，违反国家法纪。现在郭霞已经被公安机关逮捕。郭
simply renouncing your faith is not enough. You have to turn in your friends. You have to betray the people you love. You have to completely sell your soul to the regime in order to survive. And do you still call that surviving? Do you still call that living, right? So I think for, for Jun, he finally realized that there is no, there's no way out. He's, he, he, the, the only thing he can do is to, to find his own conscience and to say what he means. And interestingly enough, if, if we dive into some backstory, uh, Jun came from probably in, in, in the military family and his father participated in uh, the massacre in 1989. So they knew that they should not go against the party. But now Jun knew also if he wants to preserve the self-esteem that he, uh, he cherished, the only way is to hold on to his own faith and hold on to the truth. And this is, seems like a perpetual theme uh, when it comes to dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. You, it's almost like you have to give up the things you cherish most to work with it or perhaps not have them in the first place. Yes. And uh, this scene also tells us more about how the persecution works. Because maybe for many people, they felt, oh, okay, the police will come, they will arrest practitioners, they will be tortured, which is bad enough. Uh, but that's not all of it. In China, every school, every medium or large workplace, sometimes even private enterprises, uh, the military, uh, news organizations, uh, almost every place, even your community, your neighborhood, there will be a Communist Party representative who is responsible to carry out the party policies. And sometimes this person ranks even higher than your general manager or your school principal. So uh, the entire nation is mobilized in the crackdown against Falun Gong. For example, uh, in, in this scene, if some university students are caught disseminating information about Falun Gong, then the party secretary may be demoted. She may be fired. And that's why you see husbands uh, forced to uh, divorce their wives. Children were kicked out of school because their parents are, are Falun Gong practitioners your colleagues, your classmates, your friends, everybody is mobilized to turn against you. Just like what you see in the scene, people are often forced to renounce their beliefs in front of their colleagues, classmates, in front of the people they love, they care about. And in front of everybody, they have to say things that they do not believe in. They have to tell the party lie. So in a sense, the crackdown completely destroyed the entire nation. What do you think the purposes of these very, very public forced confessions or denunciations, what do you think the purpose of these is? I think the purpose is to create an environment where everybody understands that uh, whatever the party says, uh, you just have to follow. Everybody needs to understand that you have to completely disregard whether something is true or not. 
they no longer want people to believe in what's true. They want people to only believe in what the party want them to believe. You know, I'm thinking of this other character, the young woman who basically was, participates in hanging uh, the banners shown early in the film, gets arrested, tortured horrifically, um, and eventually gets out of prison. And But ultimately, she demands of the reporter, the Western reporter, that he tell her story in her name, even though he's telling her, I, I can get you out of the country, I can do it anonymously. She said, no, you have to do it in my name. People need to know this is real. Right. Uh, Xia, uh, the woman you mentioned, experienced extreme torture, uh, which is actually uh, well documented by human rights organizations, uh, even the United Nations, in the crackdown against Falun Gong. Even in my previous films, we've depicted uh, quite a few, you know, uh, torture methods. In letter from Mas and Jia, for example, Sun Yi was tied into a, in, into a very painful position for days. Uh, in The Bleeding Edge, we've seen practitioners' fingernails being pried out with uh, bamboo shoots. In Unsilence, for example, we have uh, practitioners burned by irons, uh, shocked by uh, electric batons. So violence and propaganda, the two most effective weapons uh, the CCP had. Well, you know, and in the face of this, and again, back to this theme that, that came out for me, which is, you know, how unlikely heroes are made. I mean, there's a lot of really innovative ways that in the face of, you know, the complete control of the media by the regime, right? that these practitioners of Falun Gong figure out how they can actually get the word out about the reality that they face and frankly just the reality about Falun Gong in itself. Right, speaking of complete control, I think many people uh, might not have uh, the idea of the extent of the control. Uh, in almost, well, there's, there's a government agency in China uh, for a long time, it, it, it is actually called the propaganda department of the Central Committee of the CCP. But then they realized that's not the best translation, so they changed the name to the publicity department. But its sole goal is to completely control the media in China. Thousands of newspapers, hundreds of TV networks, uh, they, many of them receive dozens of directives from the uh, propaganda department in terms of what to report. Uh, what, what word to use, what articles to censor. Hundreds and thousands of internet police patrolling the Chinese uh, social media space and, and the internet, which, by the way, is completely shielded off by the Great Firewall from the outside world. So you don't have access to YouTube, Google, Facebook, Twitter, not at all. And in this scenario, imagine how difficult it is for the Chinese citizens to say anything that is different from the party narrative. That's why the Falun Gong practitioners uh, employ various ways. For example, they would distribute uh, flyers door to door. They would uh, you know, distribute leaflets through balloons. They would sometimes uh, pass on uh, DVDs to, uh, to people. And there are also cases where they use loudspeakers 
with a timer. Uh, they hand the speakers on in a, in a public place or even sometimes near prisons, detention centers. And the timer would allow them to escape before uh, the, the broadcast would begin. Uh, so, so various ways to get their uh, voices heard. But what really amazed me was that despite the violent suppression, Falun Gong practitioners have never uh, employed violence in their own struggle. They've done everything they can in peaceful ways. Falun Gong practitioners' efforts perhaps is the largest nonviolent movement in the last 20 years. I would also say that this incredible innovation in dissemination of information across a country of, you know, 1.3 billion is, I, I just think, a completely unprecedented campaign of grassroots uh, peaceful activism. Yes, and uh, the uh, Chinese regime, of course, recognized how effective this campaign is. Uh, they've also taken the extreme measure. I'll give you two examples. One is across the supply stores where people can buy print paper. For a long time, they will have secret agents there uh, trying to find out who is coming to buy paper, you know, buy cartridges. Sometimes the paper is also marked. So, you know, they can trace back to see who is getting those things. Uh, another example, which, by the way, uh, we show one of those uh, scenes in our film where Lee went to buy paper and the owner actually reported her to the police. In the other case, the uh, officials uh, put special devices on, on their vans and they would go through different communities trying to detect uh, whose printers are running. And based on how long it is running, they, they can see, well, maybe this is underground uh, material site that's being used to produce those, those leaflets. And the other thing that just jumps to my mind, too, is there's th this, ultimately, this professor, despite being incredibly fearful for what was likely going to happen to his, you know, newfound second son, as you describe him, um, in the end, he kind of realizes and finds a little courage himself. I think uh, it's hard to know how this whole movement are changing people's mind because of the heavy censorship. But uh, I have no doubt that the Falun Gong practitioners' efforts over the years have planted seeds in China. And one thing I'd like to point out is the Tweedang movement. Essentially, they set up a website asking Chinese people who have joined the party or the youth uh, league or the pioneer teams which are both affiliated organizations of the communist party in china to go on this website to basically say i quit you can use your real name or you can use an alias now in the beginning i i have to admit i was a little uh, skeptical it was a website you know you can go there and just type something so what's the big deal but last time I checked, over 380 million people have gone to the website. Some simply said, I quit. I quit the party. I quit the Youth League. Some people would spend the time to write a long essay detailing how they first joined the party, how their impression of the party changed over the years, why they had to quit. I think these people 
are the seas. And one day when the time comes, these people will play a significant role in changing China forever. And this Tuidang movement is really interesting because, as you mentioned, it's not something that people have to do publicly yelling in the streets, the Communist Party's evil, but it's something I've heard it described as a kind of an internal cleansing because people, it's sort of people recognizing the party for what it is and just putting it aside from them. Whereas, as you've been describing throughout our interview, right, it tries to kind of insert itself into every aspect of your life and your consciousness, frankly. Exactly. Even that many people use aliases to quit the party uh, on this particular website, it still takes tremendous courage in a society like China. So the fact that so many people have gone to the site and did something like this really gave me hope. Uh, exactly as you mentioned, this is an internal thing, but uh, the very fact that they did it means that they have found the courage to do so. You know, one very, very effective piece of propaganda that you document in the film, and it's one of the sort of, I guess it's an important part of the development of the film, which I'm not going to give away why, but was the so-called self-immolation incident. And I'm just going to tell you, tell me a little bit about why you chose to use that and what it was, even what significance it has today. In the Chinese New Year's Eve on January 23rd, 2001, according to the Chinese state media, seven members of Falun Gong set themselves on fire in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Now this become huge news. Um, right after the incident, the Chinese regime put out 24-7 propaganda across the nation at a time when the persecution has been slowed down because many people in China felt there was simply no need to surprise such a peaceful group. And what the party did has went so far. But from the Falun Gong side, they heavily disputed this event because in their teachings, uh, they explicitly forbid any violence or, or suicide. Two weeks after the event, uh, Philip Pan from the Washington Post actually went to Kaifeng, uh, where the Chinese government claims uh, that the practitioners came from, to investigate the identity of the, of the two victims uh, who died in the incident. Nobody ever saw them practicing Falun Gong. Since then, uh, there were new reports coming out. There was a documentary made by my friend Jason Loftus called Ask No Questions also diving into this particular uh, incident. So now um, it is clear, uh, at least to me, that this, this uh, incident is staged by the Communist Party uh, to defame Falun Gong. The entire uh, self-immolation incident was used as a weapon to dehumanize and defame Falun Gong nationwide. And it really turned the public tie. Uh, for a long time, the public were sympathetic towards the Falun Gong practitioners. But after the incident, um, we see a lot more people turning in practitioners they know. We see an even increased use of extreme violence against the practitioners.
so when it comes to this uh, reporter character, the Western reporter who has just made it back into the good graces of the Chinese Communist Party after having reported on Tiananmen Square massacre 10 years before, he's now looking around, trying to figure out what's going on, and he's calling back to his editor and an editor saying, whoa, 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 what do you want to report on? Listen, let's report on nice, friendly things. So this sounds a, a common theme these days, but how did, is this what was happening back then too? Yes, uh, the, the Chinese regime had various ways to censor, control, or influence foreign reporters in China. And it's, it's been well documented by organizations such as Reporters Without Borders. Um, and in, in Unsilenced, our reporter is a composite character. I did uh, interview many reporters who stationed in China, um, and I was able to incorporate some of their experiences in, into this character. Uh, and um, for many reporters, dealing with the interference and censorship is a daily re reality. Uh, sometimes they were only given, for example, three months visa or six months of visa. And depending on what articles they write during this period of time, their visa may or may not be extended. Now, for some reporters, it's, it might be okay. They come back to the, to the States, they get assigned to a different beat, that's fine. But for some people, China is their specialty. They've been studying Chinese since college. This is what they do. And if for, for a Chinese uh, expert, for a scholar, an academia, or a reporter, if they lose access to China, they sort of lose access to everything. And that's why for many of them to be able to report the truth, it's, it's a constant uh, struggle. This actually reminds me of a recent interview I did with Ashley Rinsberg, who was talking about various uh, New York Times reporting of the past. And one example was Walter Durante in the 30s, that during Stalin's uh, forced famine of Ukraine, uh, in the 1930s, he was reporting everything was great over there and won a Pulitzer for it. And in the, one of the things that comes out in the research that Rinsberg did was that there was kind of an agreement with the Times and the Soviet Union that they would be doing positive reporting for them just to get access. For some news organizations, to be able to keep their China bureau is also essential for them uh, to be an international uh, news outlet. You know, for example, the, the CBC, the Canadian uh, broadcasting company, uh, at one time they were scheduled to air a documentary about the persecution of Falun Gong. And immediately, their Beijing bureau were visited by security officials. So at the last minute, they actually pulled the documentary. It was in such a hassle that they did not have time to change the lower third on, the, on screen. And now it's, it's unfortunately even worse because you know, few large companies probably control 90% of the media in the U.S. And if you, if you actually look into it, the vast majority of them have huge business entities in China. Theme parks, hotels, uh, various investments in China. It's no wonder that there is a conflict of interest there. And um, there's no wonder also why many news organizations shy away from the most sensitive issues in China. So Leon, there's been a lot of talk of 
a boycott of the Beijing Olympic Games in 2022. Now, some countries, including the U.S., have announced a diplomatic boycott because of, you know, at least one, if not three genocides. And I mentioned, you know, Xinjiang, the Uyghur people, Tibetans, and of course, Falun Gong, which you're talking about, which many people also believe is genocide. Um, my question is this. This is still happening today. What you've described is not a historical film. Not at all. The, the persecution against Falun Gong started in 1999 and has continued to this day. When talking about the boycotting of the Beijing Olympics, it reminds me of something quite puzzling. In almost all these official statements, people mentioned uh, the Uyghurs. People mentioned uh, other you know, groups that were persecuted, but rarely people mentioned Falun Gong. But it's, it's, it's very important to point this out because the methods that was perfected in the persecution of Falun Gong have later been used in targeting other groups, including the Uyghurs. If the world stood up against the crackdown on, on Falun Gong 20 years ago, we would be in a very different world today. Perhaps we wouldn't have so much persecution against other groups. Perhaps the cover-up, the propaganda, wouldn't be so effective. So that's why I think we cannot ignore the persecution of Falun Gong anymore. It's certainly a right step towards a diplomatic boycott, but we cannot stop there. So Leon, I keep thinking back to the title of the film, Unsilenced. And of course, the film is precisely about stepping up as individuals to fight extreme censorship and propaganda and so forth. And I know there's a lot of people around the world in the United States and frankly everywhere who frankly this film will resonate with at this moment. Absolutely. For me, this is much more than a human rights story in China. It, it is uh, on one hand about how the propaganda machine, the censorship, the cover-up that's happening in China that, uh, and, and how it directly relates to our daily lives here in America. Uh, for example, if there was no cover-up of the pandemic in the beginning, maybe we won't face such a disaster nowadays worldwide. But on the other hand, we often talk about uh, how truth will, per will prevail, how powerful truth is. Uh, in reality, you know, sometimes I would say, you know, truth is, is, is eternal, but lies are sometimes more powerful. Lies are more prevalent. If you don't make a conscious effort to, to, to seek out truth, to speak the truth, sometimes you can be surrounded by lies to a point that you can no longer tell apart truth from lies. So if we look at people in China, as you see in the film, the length they're willing to go to speak the truth. I think it's inspiring, to me at least, the why and how in the West we need to stand up for the truth. Sometimes there's a cost to speak the truth, but in no way it can compare to the cost and the risks people like Wang take in the film, like practitioners in China take. So if they can do what they do in China, facing torture, facing arrest, 
I think we can do better in, uh, in the West. So Leon, I also wanted to mention to everyone that this film is going to be appearing in many cities across America in theaters. I understand the number has been reduced somewhat. Originally, it was 60 cities across North America, but now uh, virus policy may be changing that. How can people get to it? We'll have a limited theatrical release across North America from January 21st. Um, you can go to unsilencedmovie.com to, to check the list of the theaters that we're going to have a release. Uh, you can also leave your email there uh, and you'll be the first to know when the, the movie comes to you. So Leon, I understand you've actually done some public screenings of the film. What has been the response thus far? The film has been uh, in the film festival circuit uh, for some time, and I was very uh, happy to see the response. Uh, for example, we won the Audience Award at the Austin Film Festival, and uh, from what I can see, half of the audience were uh, shedding tears after watching the film. And they were telling me how profoundly moved they were by the story, by uh, their courage, their perseverance, and how inspired they were after seeing the film. So I hope that more people will have a chance to, to, uh, to see this film and learn the incredible story of these young students and the American reporter. Well, I can also echo that sentiment. I can say that for at least an hour after I watched it, I felt very deeply moved, and it's stayed with me since. Well, Leon Lee, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you.